Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 19 of the podcast, the topic is Digital Health in Future Pandemics. Our guest is Greg Likolai, Chief Medical Officer, PRA Health Sciences, faculty at Yale School of Management and healthcare innovation columnist for Forbes. We talk about where digital health as a field is right now and where it's moving, promising startups, vaccine innovation, improving clinical trials, and staying ahead by tracking insight in the field. Greg, how are you doing today? I am doing terrific. Thank you. All right. So um, I'm excited about having you on the show. I thought, you know, um, would go through uh, some of your background. It's a it's a long roster of things that you have been doing in in your career. And we'll we'll, we'll get to talk about some of them. But uh, I don't know to to make it super brief and you can uh, you can help me out here. You certainly have a a mix of uh, a lot of different academic training, both uh, medical training and uh, business school uh, background, uh, and then you worked at McKinsey, uh, and uh, and then your career has had a subsequent number of uh, pharmaceutical companies, and you've also been in, uh, in venture, I think. So right. with all of that, what, you know, your CV is almost like a laundry list of brand names, both in industry and academia and in ho- on the hospital side. What is the what is you know what remains from all of that that kind of drives you every day? What is the one experience that you draw on when when you're you know getting inspired? What has taught you the most out of all of these different things that you know we'll get to talk about? Well, you know, I, I've been incredibly fortunate uh, being able to move through several different areas of, of medicine and medical innovation, from being a surgeon to uh, being being in ventures and, and working in small companies and, and now working in biotech in a larger company. And I, I've really met phenomenal, phenomenal people. Uh, and, and, um, and I guess the, there's the, the thrill that, that I get comes from two, two areas. One is actually being able to help and make an impact and move things forward. Um, and the second is uh, being really at the, at the creative start of something. Uh, and so I, I think the, you know, the, the couple of times where, where I was, uh, on the founding team of a, of a startup, um, have probably been the most, the most fun experiences of my, of my professional life. Um, uh, and, and, you know, just everybody kind of banding together and kind of, uh, uh, working hard and, and, and kind of taking the, you know, the roller coaster ride. Um, it, it's really, really been incredibly rewarding. Uh, and throughout those experiences, I've, I've always been, um, amazed at how, uh, companies take on personalities and the personality is always a reflection of the person or people at the top. And, and I, I noticed that very strongly in small companies, but I see that also in, in large companies. So I think it just reminds us that we have almost a, a, a moral responsibility to, to uh, not just do what's right, but to do good and to, to use that to be uh, role models for the people in our organization and, and outside. 
Greg, I think that's fascinating. I, I would say that resonates with with my experience as well, but it is kind of strange. I, so here's my question then. You, you have worked in a lot of academic institutions as well. I would guess, uh, and I haven't really thought about this question uh, f- for the places that I've been, which is also a lot of different universities, but you have experience from you know Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Boston College, and, and I'm sure uh, several, Duke as well, right? So you have a, a very big background there. Is it the same thing there or is that a completely different animal uh, in terms of uh, taking on, because, you know, it, it is depersonalized and these institutions, uh, you know, are hundreds of years, some of them. Are universities able to escape this logic that you do? Oh, escape. I mean, it, it can be great, uh, obviously, if the personalities of the leadership are, are, are very positive people. How does that work out in an academic context? You, you can be entrepreneurial in academia, and in, and in, in some way, um, a lot of successful academics have to be entrepreneurial because they're pushing the envelope. And and you know whether it's as small as creating a new class, or creating a new department, or creating a new division, or even creating a new discipline uh, that's uh, that combines parts of, of other disciplines. And I think it. But I meant in terms of taking on the personality, Greg. Do do you feel like universities? Uh, also have the personalities of their either founders or leading executives the way that you just said startups have their uh, personalities. I was just, uh, I was making a very, I, I, I think it's, yeah, yeah, it was a pretty random thought, I guess, because with universities, it is very different. I mean, a startup company, right? You have the founding team and they're there. Uh, so so I guess it works a little differently with academic units because they uh, th- they have a legacy that are, aren't tied to the person, right? Well, what I can tell you from personal experience is that, uh, you know, I was a member of a, of a department of neurosurgery at, at, at Harvard, and that was very much a reflection of the chairman of the department. You know, and then neurosurgery was part of general surgery. It was very much a reflection of the personality and the values of the, of the people who led those departments. Now, did that go all the way up to the top of the university? That's a little bit, you know, beyond my visibility, but certainly within our units, it was on, it, it very much reflected the values. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to, to work with people who really had extraordinarily, extraordinary values. Got it. You uh, told me that you biked across the country and, and I see that you're just coming back from, uh, from exercise. So exercise is important to you. <laughs> it is. It is mind body connection. So, uh, a- absolutely. And I, uh, uh, I, I realize that, uh, if I, if I'm able to get even a little bit, uh, uh, early in the morning, then, uh, somehow the rest of my day is in balance. You know, it's interesting you say that. I think we are learning so much more, even over the last five years in terms of the connections between mind and body. And we're finally starting to measure it, which I think goes into some of the stuff we will talk about on on the the digital health side, right? Because it used to be that these were just good pieces of advice and and based on kind of like cohort studies and, and, and intuition that people would say, well, you know, you should... Uh, you should get exercise, but uh, aren't you uh, in agreement that the proof points are starting to get there with these, even these devices starting to measure true, uh, true changes at a micro level? Um, would you say that there are some um, particular uh, tools that you use to track your and monitor your body right now? I mean, have, have you, tr- are you trying to apply some of your insight from, uh, from tracking health applications to using them yourself? You know, 
I am, but but nothing um, very out of the ordinary. So, um, uh, you know, occasionally I'll take my own blood pressure. I'll, I'll check my own blood sugar. You know, I've got sort of, a, you know, watches and stuff that measure activity and heart rate. And, and I don't have any, you know, particular chronic diseases. Um, but it, it's just... I find it motivating to see how how things sort of change and fluctuate over time, um, and, and with the the availability of, to have these connected devices, um, it's so easy to do. Um, and it uh, that's another motivating factor is that that I see you know being able to kind of crown, uh, track my activity and calories and steps and etc. Um, it just keeps me motivated to uh, turn the wheel day after day after day. Got it. Got it. Let's uh, jump into, uh, you know, to our topic a little bit. First, I, I wanted to chat about, I guess, one more thing in your background, which you're actively doing right now. So clinical trials is a, you know, it's a topic that you were either, you were rather interested in it. Uh, you know, the people who have to do them are interested in it, but it's not a topic that gets a lot of press outside of the specialty uh, arenas until, uh, you know, COVID and other things where people start realizing, or if you have a, a rare disease, I should say that also kicks in, right? But suddenly you start caring, is there a clinical trial I can take part of? And there's a digital connection here definitely as well, right? Because at the moment that these trials started to go online and you could actually search for them and you didn't have to have a network uh, to know about them, right? There, there are these sites now where you can actually find trials. Tell me about your your work with clinical trials, uh, you know, professionally, but also in this association. Uh, first, what's wrong with clinical trials? And then number two, especially on the digital angle, what are what is being done right now in terms of um, digitizing trials, making them more efficient, and um, and, and really, what was the problem in the first place? You know, we should all care about clinical trials and clinical development. So uh, hopefully mo most people that are listening um, don't have a, a disease, but um, I, I, it would be remarkable if they weren't, uh, if they didn't have a close one that had some condition that, that requires a pharmaceutical agent. Um, uh, and we should all care deeply about the development of, of pharmaceutical agents. I mean, you know, drugs are among the most high-tech products that humankind has ever produced. And if you think about just the, the technology that goes into testing and developing and experimenting, the molecular biology, the genetics, I mean, it really is the truly the cutting edge and the pinnacle of, of, of our species sophistication in science. Um, uh, that being said, um, there are huge gaps in uh, in several areas of, of clinical trial. One is um, efficiency, and that goes directly to cost. It, it can cost over a billion dollars to develop a drug. So what does that mean? That means it drives up the cost of drugs and drives up the cost of healthcare. That's a problem. Um, number two is access. Um, access to healthcare and, and access to clinical trials is actually... Uh, it reflects the same way that there's poor access to healthcare in the United States. And, and you know, why, why should that be an issue? For, for a couple of reasons. One is diversity. So if we lack diversity in clinical trials, then we're maybe not developing drugs for the right segment of the, or for the entire population, I should say. So, you know, if only 
you know, people like me, you know, sort of uh, middle-aged white males are, uh, are, are in clinical trials, then you can, you can imagine that the genetics and physiology is perfected for that group as opposed to the diversity of people who, who uh, can have different, you know, somewhat slightly but somewhat more dramatic effects. But then it also goes into the final issue, just as sorry, one last thing. There's this well-documented entity called clinical research as a care option, and uh, particularly in deadly diseases such as oncology, people who have access to clinical research literally live longer, survive better, do better. And I think that's a reflection of access, but, but it, it is something that we should, you know, three, the, the statistics are that only about 3% of people who are eligible actually, you know, get involved or hear about clinical trials. That means we're missing 97% of our target population. It, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. What you're saying is so fundamental though, because as we're going to talk about later, some of the startups and the digital therapeutics that are, that are happening now where, where, you know, the FDA is actually getting involved in, uh, you know, in approving, uh, important relationships really, uh, where, where it's pretty much only knowledge being exchanged between the practitioner and, uh, you know, and the patient. But this kind of information at the right time is just so pivotal. Um, so yes, you know, uh, I believe that everyone should be engaged in, in clinical trials. One of the things that I think I wanted to ask you about is what is the best strategy to get more people involved in, in clinical trials? Because, um, all right. So one thing is making them visible so you can see. Um, but this is a little bit of a big versus small data problem, right? You know, if we were happy just to have, you know, 15 people involved in a, in a study, you know, those were the old days. Now we are kind of in the internet days where we are used to big data, but it, it isn't it true that in medicine, a lot of very, very important work is still carried out with ridiculously low samples, if I may speaks, you know, to it as kind of a, with a statistician's or a big data person's perspective. So we really either have to say, we're going to accept that the uh, quality of, you know, of, of treatments is going to remain a, as it is. And, you know, or we have to say, it's not just about the technologies and the beautiful therapeutics. We actually have to, like you pointed out, involve an enormous uh, m more, a bigger amount of the population and, and, and also with different characteristics, right? I mean, let's not forget, uh, what you just said about, um, not the entire population being involved. So if you're just sampling 60 year olds, how can you make sure that, you know, in, in the United States, how can you make a, a medication for someone, you know, of a different, uh, complete social group in a completely different context. But, but what, what are in your work then for, for, uh, uh, for instance, this association, the clinical trials transformation initiative, what are some contemporary initiatives to, to get a lot more people involved? Yeah. You know, and I would, uh, it, it, it's, I would liken this to voting, you know, in the United States of America. I, so I don't know exactly what the latest voter turnout, you know, numbers are. But here we are, you know, lots of people complain about politics, et cetera, et cetera. But lots of people don't vote. Um, and uh, I'm not going to say it's as easy, but there need to be fundamental changes both in the system as well as people's attitudes in order to engage in something like voting but in, in same thing in terms of engaging in something like uh, clinical research, um, 
Uh, I think it's easy enough for people who are, you know, see their physicians, et cetera. Maybe they've got uh, illnesses and stuff just to ask and find out. And usually there's plenty of resources being, being, you know, thrown at them through traditional methods, but the traditional method of getting people involved in clinical trials is their doctor at their site, you know, at their hospital. Um, those folks are really busy. I think they're doing, you know, really incredible jobs, but they're really busy. It's hard for them to, to keep, keep all this in mind. I think for this system to be effective, we, we need to go outside of it and engage uh, digital communication, social media, et cetera, in order for, for people to be uh, better involved and, 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 you know, access. So there's lots of um, consumer-oriented, patient-oriented apps and information locations that, that they can go for uh, once they're doing research on a disease to find out about clinical trials. Um, right. There, there's also a lot of initiatives, as you say, set up. So I'm on something called the um, Clinical Trial uh, Transformation Initiative. It's uh, funded by the FDA and Duke, uh, the Duke Margulis Foundation, um, as a partnership to uh, give it, uh, create advisory panels around things that can be do- done better to run, to do better clinical research and clinical work. Um, that, uh, that's all being, uh, uh, and some of the recommendations that are coming out of that are doing, uh, one of the more interesting ones is to do, uh, mobile or decentralized clinical trials where it goes directly to the patient uh, and patients don't have to go to the hospital. They can they can stay at home and get all the information. They uh, uh, and you know drugs get dropped off. Uh, you know the data is picked up. Uh, everything can be done remotely. Uh, and I think that kind of experience really needs to be the future of clinical research. So I wanted to draw a parallel here and ask you because you know um, I wrote about uh, the pandemic this year. I wrote a book on uh, called the pandemic aftermath. One of the things that I discovered to my dismay really was that the field of public health, uh, and this is going to be my opinion, and I'm curious about yours, has not really seen the same pace of innovation as other fields of society has. Um, Certainly not the same influx of technology. And I think it, it relates to clinical trials, actually, that we were talking about. It relates to a whole host of other issues. But, uh, but as I was reflecting on that, I, I kind of thought to myself, you know, it is definitely unfair to put all of the blame for that particular challenge, which we saw very much around COVID and are seeing now, only on the experts of public health, right? It's a field that is so complicated. It ties into, as we know, politics. But more importantly, in in this context, it actually ties into the individual responsibility because maybe... Uh, there are some magic wands that we could have used in public health early on in this crisis. But on the other hand, uh, participation in things like clinical trials. I mean, there are a lot of places in health these days where if the experts don't have the data, then it's much more difficult to develop new approaches. So could you comment a little bit on, uh, I would say, uh, this this idea that public health hasn't made the necessary progress? and um, well, tell me, uh, how were you, were you as surprised as I was at kind of what has happened around the public health dimension of, of COVID? You, you know, it, there's a lot of opportunities that have been underutilized, especially with COVID. So uh, I think it's it, the experiment has played itself out in other parts of the world. Um, I think for that, it's uh, 
it's testing and tracking that right. we're, we're just not, we're just not doing that. I mean, of course, we, you know, once we test, once we track, we have to react to that and, and, you know, behave differently. But uh, we're, you know, we're way behind the eight ball in, in, in doing, in doing that. Right. So when you think about digital healthcare specifically in terms of COVID, uh, I mean, there again, you, you know, we were pre-COVID in, in this effervescent time where everybody was sort of saying data is coming in, AI is here, it's going to transform every field, including healthcare. And then I would say, arguably, it hasn't, it has and it hasn't, right? I mean, there are so many things coming out. We'll talk about so, some of them, some of these startups. Was it? Did it come a little too early in this cycle that, you know, there, there, there is a lot of promise. There, there are all of these exciting initiatives, but COVID just came a little abruptly. Or is it just that we have this necessary time of adjustment and we will come back with a vengeance with all these technology tools and, and basically crush, uh, you know, crush the opposition from the disease, um, it, you know, in a, in a literal way. So, you know, testing, of course, uh, being one of them, but, but also many, many more monitoring tools that are, uh, of a more digital nature. I mean, do you, do you have faith that the innovation community will come back? Uh, especially on the digital side and, and be relevant for this COVID or, or are we more talking about the next uh, pandemic? You know, these I, new tools? I, I'm actually, so, so uh, I, I think there's been an overwhelming and positive response. And, and, and I, I'll, I'll tell you in, in my field in drug development, um, a year, a couple of years ago, we would have had, um, a really tough time trying to get sponsors to embrace mobile technologies, digital technologies, remote monitoring, etc. You know, probably ten percent or less of clinical trials had any kind of that those elements. So the the you know this tragedy that's ha that's happening with the pandemic. Um, the silver lining has been a rush to embrace digital healthcare, and we see that right. with telemedicine, with uh, uh, remote patient care, and in drug development, we see that with the embracing of these mo uh, uh, mobile trials and, and decentralized trials. I mean, it's literally gone to 100% of, of new trials that are being, uh, being uh, developed. Have They're exploring it. So, so I do have... Actually, you know, I'll use Fauci's phrase, you know, cautiously optimistic that we'll, we'll reach a new equilibrium where there's a lot more em embracing of technology in healthcare. You know, it, it's been noted by many, you know, many, many, you know, observers and authors that healthcare has been very slow to finally embrace basic technology that we see in lots of other industries. But, but I do think this has been kind of a kickstart, uh, uh, kind of a kick in the pants of the field. To, to move in that direction. So, so let's take two areas then. I mean, drug development, very close to your heart, and then vaccines. So l l let's just quickly touch on the vaccines first. So, I, you know, there, there are some uh, studies that sh generally show, and I think that's the fair, fair data, that o over a, the last few decades, the average time it takes to get to market with a vaccine is around 10.7 years. Now, it's kind of hard to reconcile that with uh, Fauci and other people's cautious optimism, you know, or either early on or even now saying, well, you know, we can do it in 15 months, we can do it in 18 months. 
on the other hand, you know, there was the Pfizer announcement uh, just yesterday, right? So, um, and as you pointed out, many trials have gone much faster than they have ever gone before. So, one, where is it actually, where are they cutting the time? So these 10.5 years, largely, where are they being cut? And two, how, what do you say to people who are saying, well, and, and this is, you know, vaccine resistance is a, is a challenge, is an interesting problem to have in a society. But I am talking to a lot of people who are not fanatics, but they're actually smart people who are sitting down and they're just reflecting around this issue of vaccines. And they're using this idea that suddenly we can come out with a vaccine in two years instead of 10. And they're saying, there's something that's not right with that. So help us just explain how can we, how is it even possible to go from 10 years to two years and, and where are they cutting the time? Uh, you know, it's, um, it's like the Manhattan Project. So, so, you know, if you, you know, whose goal was obviously, you know, completely different, but, um, you know, the entire country got behind uh, um, building uh, um, a weapon that would protect us from, from you know, the threat of, of, a, of, a, of a, you know, fascist invasion and a Nazi invasion. Um, it took a massive, massive effort and it was absolutely a race, but, but that race was won because we went from a linear model to a, a group model. So right. you take, you bring that forward to what's happened right now. There, there are, uh, hundreds, I think, I think 1200 trials right now, um, that, uh, of various things that are being tried uh, in COVID, um, literally every single hospital, every single researcher, every single department, and most pharmaceutical companies have done this dramatic pivot to to looking yeah. at this. So, so what does that mean? You know, previously a lot of those ten years we'd be chewed up in in identifying the structure of the causative agent. That was done right. in a matter of weeks. Um, and once that was done, some of these other technologies uh, were able to harness that and jump in right away and start you know, building potential vaccines based on, based on es essentially a global collective effort to understand this and, and, to, and, to, and to attack it. So, so, I, I so both on the financing and on the speed of the trials themselves, there clearly uh, is some time saved. And then you have the government, right? So there's no waiting time. And, uh, you know, that, that has been one thing where the top political leadership in the U.S. has definitely stepped in and has, you know, doesn't seem to be slowing things down uh, rather on the, in the other end of things. But, you know, there is two things with vaccines. There's uh, safety and efficacy. Um, I don't know if, you know, you, you worked at Moderna, right? Uh, for a, a long time. I did. I was a president of rare disease there. Right. So Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines, and perhaps a, a few others are these new mRNA vaccines. What, what are some of the main things that are still known and unknown about those? Because, you, you know, it, there's a lot of excitement about innovation in vaccines, because it's such a traditional domain. It's an ancient technology by, by, uh, you know, by 2020 standards. And here you have these two, uh, candidates that, that represent a, a completely new approach. 
what what is known and what is unknown uh, about those two and should people think about those differently from the way they think about all the other uh, 100 other vaccine candidates when they think about uh, not just taking it but just reflecting around uh, what it would mean to, uh, to to bring them into to their family or 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 even just what, what we should think of about those vaccines uh, on a societal level one thing that i definitely know is that they are quicker to produce so that's yeah, one very basic difference. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, I, you know, going from the traditional way of making vaccines and biologic products to using mRNA, it's a little bit, it's almost like the shift from um, transistors, uh, from, from uh, vacuum tubes to solid state transistors uh, and, and chips. Um, so, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a leap forward. So, so. Right. You know, mRNA is more of the solid state chip. And, and the big difference here is that um, it's a synthetic process as opposed to a biologic process in order to manufacture. So a synthetic process, it's manufacturing. You know, you just you, you basically run machines, essentially, and you and you produce this material as opposed to using biological systems that have a lot of quirks in it uh, in order to produce biological material. The, you right. know, how, how this affects patients down the road, you know, it'll be completely invisible, but, but it does mean that you can, you know, once the molecular biology was, was determined for, for the, for the vaccine, for the virus, you could go in and literally download the sequence from the, the from the published sequence and decide which of, which of the epitopes you want to track to start building a vaccine around. You just jump right so in. synthetic biology, you know, is fascinating, and you know we're going to be covering that uh, deeply on on this podcast. But what do you say to people who say synthetic biology is fine, but not into my body? I don't want anyone to mess with my DNA, RNA. You know, all of that is great, and I love the products coming out from it, uh, and I see some improvements. You know, even even perhaps in 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 food, but but not directly into my own body. What what do you say to those people? Because I've heard these arguments from presumptive, very, very smart and accomplished individuals. And I, and I wonder what the answer is to that question from, from health professionals. Well, I, I mean, th there are, you know, there are tons of things that are, you know, that have DNA or not RNA and trying to get into our bodies right now. You know, viruses, right. bacteria, I mean, it, it's everywhere. Um, so, uh, you, you know, we're not... You know, we're not living in, in, you know, some kind of isolation tank. Um, you know, this is, this is just a smarter way to, uh, to, produce, to produce medicine. Um, you know, personally, I, I don't have much concern around um, the safety elements, not because they're automatically safe, but be, because we have lots of checks and balances. And all these things have to be approved by the FDA, which is under a lot of pressure in order to give permission to start the trials as soon as possible. But uh, I don't think that that means that they're going to, they're going to reduce the requirements, the safety require requirements to actually say a drug is approved. Now right. is, is the first one out of the gates going to be the last one we ever use? Probably not. I mean, drugs go through modifications and improvements uh, over time and my guess is that, you know, the first one or the first couple will be pretty good 
but eventually we'll use combinations and eventually we'll get, you know, as we learn more about the disease and, and uh, more about the, the biology and the, and the genetics of it, we'll get to better and better drugs. So, um, I, you know, we'll probably be a, we'll, we'll probably do a pretty good job to start, but then uh, it, it'll probably take a long time before we say, yeah, we've got this one completely nailed. I mean, it's the same way that happened in other types of, you know, I mean, go back all the way to polio and, and, uh, and smallpox, you know, there, there were different improvements on the vaccines that, that eventually got us to where we are. So let's touch super briefly on, on, on the drug side. Are you more optimistic or uh, on the drug side or on the vaccine side of, of this particular uh, disease? Do you think the drugs are going to also make a, a massive difference here? I think the drugs will make a massive difference, um, but to, to the sickest people, you know, it's some small percentage, right. you know, uh, five, 10 percent of people who actually develop uh, illness. And, and I, I do think we'll make some breakthroughs. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, ICU patients, you know, who, who are difficult to breathe and intubated. So uh, it'll be very important for a smaller group. Yeah. Well, I think we th that's the point. We need fixes here on, on many, many levels. Thinking about the pandemic? Buy the book. Pandemic Aftermath. How Coronavirus Changes Global Society by Trond Unheim was published by Atmosphere Press in 2020 putting the pandemic into the context of the two historical precedents, the Black Death and the influenza of 2018. Five scenarios are considered to be relevant for our understanding of the next decade. The five scenarios are borderless world, nation state renewal, two worlds apart, Habitian chaos and status quo. The first portion of the book is nonfiction. The second portion of the book is fiction. If you are at all curious, you can get this book everywhere books are sold and can learn more at pandemic-aftermath.com. So let's move to a more sort of traditional digital healthcare and uh, uh, I've seen some staggering numbers out this year. Mercom Capital Group was uh, talking about uh, the first half of 2020, and that's, I guess, even before COVID, shattering funding records, bringing in $6.3 billion funding activity up 24%. Why is it that this is happening now? Why was digital healthcare slow for 30 years and then suddenly it is exploding? Am I, I mean, one, am I right that this is, that it was slow for a while and then exploding? And then two, why now? Yeah, it, 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 you're absolutely right. It's exploding right now. Um, you know, we've been waiting and, and it's finally, you know, it's finally happening. I, I I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure who said this. I'm going to say it's uh, Winston Churchill, but maybe your listeners will correct me. Um, change, change is really slow and then it happens all at once. Um, and I, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's really a combination of forces that, that have gotten us to where we are. Um, I think one is, uh, um, you know, we, we already talked about kind of the, the pandemic kind of pushing technology forward and, and you know, the, the, it being so completely apparent that we needed a different model, but but uh, other things, um, the system is is at such a breaking point in terms of the costs of uh, delivering healthcare, distributing healthcare, the problems that we have in access uh, of being able to get to diverse uh, populations. I mean, that's been in the mindset uh, now for you know I don't know how many how many years, um, and. 
as, as, as we've identified those big issues, that has spurred on creativity and inspiration to entrepreneurs to, uh, you know, to work on new solutions. And, and part of the barrier that, that has begun to get broken down is that you've got two domains that need to be combined. You need, you've got digital and medicine. And so, uh, you know, on, on one side, you've got people like me who, you know, takes 10 or 15 years to get trained in biology and medicine. And really, we don't have time to learn how to cope. Uh, and on, on the other hand, uh, you know, people probably close to your background who understand technology. I mean, just think of having to do all that work and take, you know, uh, organic chemistry and, and, you know, back in the day. Um, nowadays, right. I think that gap really is becoming an overlap. Um, and I've, uh, I, I know, I know, uh, a number of people who are, who are entering medicine as computer scientists and they know how to code. Um, and they wind up getting sort of vacuumed up into really exciting jobs and really exciting positions because now this convergence is, is actually happening. So we need people right. who can translate one technology to another. You know, uh, I'm doing some work now on on this idea of um, of pie uh, of pie shaped expertise. Pie as in as in the the number pie, or or at least having two. Because the older uh, expression was, you know, society needs a T shaped expert, so an expert in one domain that can communicate with other domains and has like some surface level awareness. But that's really not good enough in innovation these days, right? You have to actually have a deep level knowledge in, I would say, minimum two domains. And in, in this particular domain, it's medicine and um, and digital, whatever that happens to mean, because you can't really just outsource that into into two different people all the time. You you just, I mean, when you say, I mean, you would miss a lot of connections if, if you were trying to create these power teams of a smart doctor and a, and a smart coder. There are so many companies that I have seen these days that are combining those in one person I mean, and in many people, but that several people have to have that expertise. Otherwise, you're just missing the connections. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, um, you know, if you go back, you know, to the days that I was in high school and college, the mantra was um, be well balanced, go broad. You know, you have to have a well balanced uh, education, a well balanced career. You have to be good at everything. Um, right. nowadays, I think it's the, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, far removed from that. And that, that's what I tell my students, you know what, don't, don't try to be balanced, you know, don't try to do everything well, figure out the one or two things that, uh, that are your spikes. That's what, you know, uh, that's a McKinsey phrase, you know, figure out where your spikes are, uh, and you only need one, maybe two. And if you can, if you can, you know, uh, uh, have a real, um, spike that reflects your interest. So first of all, you'll always be happy with your professional life. And, and secondly, uh, it might take a little bit of time, but you will get rewarded for, for, you know, being an expert in something that, that you're, you're, you're truly passionate about. Got it. So what are the remaining barriers though, for change in digital health? Because, the mere fact of announcing six billion increase in funding doesn't say that these will all succeed. And we have all seen in other fields, like there have been, 
you know, AI summers before where people have invested in enormous amount. There are a lot of domains like you could just go to the environmental or, or even energy technology field where clean tech was, was hot and then not hot. So there are a lot of disappointments also waiting for people who are doing innovation. What are some of the remaining barriers that you uh, are worried about in this new landscape in terms of everybody kind of getting in on the, you know, getting in the boat on this? Uh, what, what is it that would keep you up at night thinking, wow, I wonder who's going to get dissolution when they, you know, when they find out that things aren't that easy, where are some of those barriers going to be? Because I think we all know that, um, things go a little cyclically, right? So whenever something is really hot, some of the wrong people get involved and, uh, you know, those people will, will discover that it's, this is not all that easy. Mm. You know, I think there are three phases that that um, this field has to go through, and you know, maybe you can generalize it to other fields. But there's the the solution creation, and all this venture capital money is going into creating new solutions. So you identify a problem, you create a solution. Oh, I've got this brand new, brand new widget technology. That's great. In medicine, there's two other big ones. The second one is the um, you need to uh, um, uh, uh, verify that the solution works through um, verification, essentially through clinical data, medical data. And that's kind right. of where we are. We've got solutions and there are trials being run, papers being published that say, yes, it, it not only does it work on your watch, but actually you can treat populations and you can follow people. So, so that kind of, uh, you know, that, a uh, clinical validation step is absolutely important and it needs to go very broad because doctors by nature are conservative and the healthcare system is con conservative. We're sort of in the middle of that. The third phase is, 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 is uh, uh, kind of the most uh, prosaic, but, but it's a necessary step. It's the reimbursement phase. So, so venture is going at the beginning this is getting people to pay for it at the very end. So it's insurance companies, Medicare, uh, government, etc. So you need to take that the, the validation of clinical data and build up enough evidence that uh, it not just it works, but it also has you know creates value for the system. So you know um, you know uh, tracking. You know, say say uh, uh, we can we can track people's uh, we can track asthma hotspots, and this is an example from a digital health healthcare company that I think has done a great job of combining both digital technology and public health. So you can track asthma hotspots in cities that are uh, in industrial cities that are, that can be very humid and and, and cause problems, uh, and you can show that that you can. Get the technology, you can show that that works and that's pretty cool. But then for that to be reimbursed, you have to demonstrate that an intervention actually saves money or saves lives. And that's what this, uh, uh, this company that pioneered this was able to do. That it, it, um, giving that information back to the patients and physicians of where the hotspots are got them to avoid that, avoid those hotspots, number one, but number two, also got to, them to use their medications appropriately, which avoided emergency room visits, so it saved the system money. What was the name of that company you said? It's called Propeller. 
Propeller. This is Propeller. Got it. Propeller Health. Got it. Uh, give me some, some some other startups that you've been fascinated by. I know you and I had a, a, an early interchange on Akili, which mm-hmm. has this interesting gamification approach, but it's more than that, right? It is, well, you, you tell me what it's about, but it seems to be stimulating brainwaves in a very interesting way. And I, I found that pretty fascinating. What, what, what was your, uh, how did you discover Akili? So, so uh, you know, working with a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist and a lawyer uh, at, at Yale, uh, we were doing um, you know a consulting project, and 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 we we found Achille years ago. I mean, and this is you know talk about convergence. So it was founded by um, neuroscientist at Stanford who is an expert in virtual reality, uh, and it's it's that combination of of biological science and and digital science, uh, and so what they were uh, able to do is track, uh, uh, you know, create the create these these uh, um, video games, as you say. So so the idea of Achille is it's uh, it's video games for people with ADHD and behavioral health disorders that help them to focus and uh, uh, and you know basically pay attention. Um, but the fact that it was, uh, that these things were developed, created and developed and the effects were tracked by neuroscientists, um, they were able to, uh, literally sculpt the program to get the desired effect in the brain. Um, and you know, there's nothing manipulative about it. I mean, you know, we could do this through meditation. We could do this through repetitive behavior. I mean, you know, repeating the same word or repeat, repeating the same sort of tennis move over and over and over. You can imagine that that sculpts your, your neuronal connection. So that's how you get better at it without, without having to think about it. They were able to track that through these video games in order to, uh, you know, basically work with uh, what's going on with ADHD. And, and they just recently announced approval or, or uh, you know, a clearance of their, of their product. I mean, neuroscience is fascinating these days, right? I mean, uh, you have you have this, and then you have kind of Neuralink and, and other companies trying to create a direct uh, connection into your brain. But I mean, the point is, our eyes are the most direct connection to our brain that we have so far, and they're not that bad, actually, if you just use them the right way. So this is, uh, I guess, an example of that, uh, that it actually can be, our eyes is a channel as a to a, cl- a clinical instrument now. What, some of the other companies we, we were er, er, chatting about earlier, so Volantis and, and Peer Therapeutics, are more in these um, uh, areas of prescription digital therapeutics. Tell me uh, m- more about some of uh, those two approaches as well and, and why you're excited about those, th- those other two companies. Um. You know, the, the most dramatic thing I can say here is that it, it, it saves lives. Um, so yep. I'll give an example of a published, some published work, um, in, uh, disease management that came out a couple of years ago and then not from these companies, but, uh, it, it's a study that showed that, that, uh, patients who have, uh, cancer and they have access to, uh, Web, web-based tools, internet tools in order to track side effects, track disease progress, get in touch with their doctors um, versus the traditional approach. The traditional approach is you get your chemotherapy, you see your doctor once a month, 
They follow up in six weeks. Maybe they do a, a CAT scan or an X-ray once a month or every six weeks or every couple months. So um, obviously disease doesn't progress, progress in month-long intervals. You know, Got it. But it's more than drug adherence though, Greg, it's, isn't it right? Because, you know, the simplistic explanation why this is working is that you're saying, well, of course, because people weren't taking their meds, but this is about something way different than just adhering to a re regiment of, of medicine. It's not, it's much more complicated than just saying, you know, you should take two, 200 milligrams every two weeks. It's, it's not just a reminder call. These companies are providing much more, aren't they? They're, it's a oh, lot more personalized than that. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a lot more than that. And this is, and in fact, you know, adherence was not what was being measured. It was actually disease progression and the ability right. to capture patients, basically provide, you know, a safety net that isn't kind of happening periodically, but happens continuously. And that, that's why I think one of the promises of digital medicine is some, you're, we're getting to something a little bit closer to care continuity versus this episodic care of seeing your doctor. I mean, if you've got a chronic disease, you see your doctor maybe every six months or, or, or even less frequently. So, so certainly adherence of, to medications is a, is a big, big part of it, but just it's care continuity of, you know, what symptoms do, should I be worried about? Um, is this, is this symptom a trigger that does mean there's a medication adjustment that requires a call from a nurse, from a doctor? Uh, it's providing information about, uh, better, better personal management, lifestyle management, uh, and and all of these things get wrapped up in in these disease soft uh, disease management software uh, products that uh, are, are being developed. And and again, I think it's it it also has the the promise to transcend barriers that we have uh, that that are problematic with access, like language and diversity. So as we're looking into the next decade, which is sort of the time frame uh, for a lot of the discussions on on this podcast, wh what are some of the things uh, that will start to happen? I mean, through the startups, through the response to COVID, and through other factors that you know uh, that you feel free to let us know about. What do you think really is going to happen over uh, the next decade in terms of improvements in digital health? Is it so now there's obviously capital involved. There are some promising startups and there is this notion of, uh, you know, new types of expertise that are being brought together. Um, what, what will all of that result in? Uh, you know, the dream is, you know, uh, um, uh, it's a science fiction type of dream, but I think it's pretty, pretty much closer to reality than we think, you know? So, so the dream is that, you know, you've got, um, uh, you're informed early on that, uh, uh, you're, you know, potentially at risk for certain things. And that gives you information to change your behavior. Now, it sounds kind of simple the way I've described it, but to put that together, you, you need to put three vast domains together that right now are not. Part of it is data, part of it is analytics and AI, and part of it is is you know, just a digital technology to sort of give the right you know, uh, assessments and recommendations. So the three domains are genotype, phenotype, and outcomes. So genotype is genetics, you know, your biology. Um, so much of, of our biology and our gene, genes really determine our health status. The second is phenotype. So it's the interaction between 
your in, in genotype uh, uh, databases are being built, and nowadays, you know, the first the first you know human genome was you know uh, was cost a billion dollars. You know, now we can get them for I got mine done for free uh, through you know through through some trials uh, or through some offers. Um, so gen- the genotype da- databases are exploding. The phenotype databases those are those exist right now in the form of electronic medical records. So what do your symptoms mean? You know, if you, if you do or do not have a diagnosis, how does that manifest itself? Um, but that's right now separate from the genotypes. We can put that together, but then we have to push it all the way forward more to the world that I'm in, the outcomes. And the outcomes are based on interventions, whether it's drugs or surgery or lifestyle. How do we tie an outcome to your particular phenotypic disease state, and even earlier to your particular genotype. What are you at risk for that makes you know, look, it might not affect you today, but um, maybe you're at higher risk for asthma. Maybe you should think about uh, these types of exercises versus uh, other types of exercises. You know, maybe uh, um, you'll notice that if you do exercise when it's uh, say humid out, you'll develop certain symptoms. So maybe you can change some behaviors. That's the way we get in front of in front of a disease process, as opposed to showing up people showing up, you know, decades later when they they have difficulty breathing and maybe they have COPD or other diseases. So, Greg, I I would love to be as optimistic as you, but the only thing I would say to that is uh, think about today, and and we don't even have to think about COVID. But if you think about COVID, you could say, well, we know today pretty much that if you are obese, you have a higher uh, you know, worse, worse outcome. That's not something uh, we need an enormous amount more research to figure out. So the logical conclusion, if people knew that, which I think a lot of people do, is that they should go down and get on a treadmill or they should start working out every day or they should eat differently or there are a thousand different types of interventions for that particular condition. Now, that perhaps is happening. I don't know. There's not conclusive research on whether that has happened yet. So I'm not going to claim that it isn't. But I would say I haven't seen an enormous amount of more people on my morning jog than I saw before. So uh, this is all to say that behavioral science and behavioral interventions, they don't all stop with the science, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, one thing is to know that you should do a certain thing. A whole other thing is you're actually willing to do so. How, how do you think that these new approaches are going to get at that problem? And were some of the startups we were talking about, have they found a way into our brain that is more direct so that we will actually follow the excellent doctor's advice? Well, let me give you one more example. So, so um, uh, you're, you're right, you know, you know, a, a little flag on your on your phone, you know, isn't necessarily going to make you a marathon runner. That's true, but you know, let's you know, let's talk about some you know successes. So, so there's a company called Proteus Digital. Um, so they're they're famous for making the chip on a pill. Uh, so it's actually digestible. You swallow when you take your prescription drugs. Um, it it's encapsulated with something that tracks that you've actually swallowed it. So what's the big deal with that? I mean, there's an enormous amount of technology and tracking that goes into that. And it sends a signal that eventually goes to your, your app and to your doctor that says, yes, you're, you're adhering to your medication. So, um, 
let me tell you what the outcome of, of a study that they did. Um, they took a group of patients that were defined as refractory to medical intervention with their uh, metabolic disease. Basically, they took exactly that population that you said. Um, and refractory means we've given up on them because we think they are genetically uh, are not their, their bodies are, are genetically you know not able to respond to medication. They took those patients, they put them on this program using uh, the Proteus pill that actually tracked adherence, sent reminders. It created a continuity of care. It created con- some sense of control of the patient that was enough to get these refractory patients to actually be in both in blood pressure and diabetic control. I think that's a remarkable result. Now, is yeah, that is remarkable? Probably not. But but I do think you know it's that kind of understanding. And not just sort of giving up on the system and say, well, no, no, like you're, you're, you know, it's too, you're too far gone. I mean, I think we, we keep on pushing and, you know, we, we, we make these incremental changes and incremental benefits. The landscape we're talking about is, is incredibly fascinating and it's, and healthcare is a field that everybody cares about and we should definitely keep ourselves informed. How do you personally stay up to date in the fields where you are either paid to track through your daytime job or through many, many of your interests and, uh, and sort of side interests and, and, and innovation advisory and consulting roles? Where, who do you follow? What papers do you read? Uh, and what do you recommend uh, me and others who would like to track this field, but for whom this is not our day job or it's certainly not the only day job i mean I, I have the ambition here on the podcast to track around 20 meta technologies uh so that's a very big challenge to do that on the side while doing other things how how do you per- personally stay up to date well you're right i mean i'm incredibly lucky uh i get to go to conferences and you know everything from traditional medical to digital healthcare conferences although not in the last couple of months, but, you know, all of that has shifted online these days. Um, but, but I think there's, there's, there's lots of publicly available information. I tend to like stuff that comes from more traditional sources and it would be, uh, uh, nature medicine, uh, science magazine, scientific American. Um, they all have, um, uh, they all publish, uh, uh, frequent, uh, uh, free uh, updates and news. There's science news, there's nature news, nature reports. And in fact, both of them also have uh, new digital medicine uh, journals that if you want to go even deeper, you can start looking up, up stuff there. But, but I've been New England Journal of Medicine, they all, they all have you know, technology updates that they, that they provide. Would you say that some of these uh, medical journals have started reaching out to the general population or, or even just, you know, uh, uh, innovators and people who are, who are not expected to be medical personnel more and have more content these days that are digestible? I mean, I happen to be a person who would read even a medical article or, or, or 20, um, even though I don't have a medical uh, professional, uh, you know, education, but many, many others would would prefer to have things in a format that was digestible for them as a non-specialist audience. 
so Scientific American, those kinds of places. What about some of these more online uh, sources and newsletters and things? I mean, there's just so much that you could look at. And if you start uh, putting anything into search engines about digital healthcare, there's accelerators, there's uh, newsletters, and even just organizations catering to this field. It's easy to get overwhelmed by by that information, and it's hard to assess quality. I think. Yeah, that, that, that's that's true. That's true. And so, um, uh, I write for Forbes, uh, um, you know, on on uh, innovation in healthcare, um, and you know, they general news outlets. You know, so so I think there's a difference between you know, an outlet that has a specific purpose and, you know, it's difficult to determine if they're being, you know, funded by a corporations or solely by one point of view, but general outlets such as science, nature, Forbes, scientific American, you know, other types of, uh, you know, I mean, there's obviously the New York times and the Washington post. I mean, I, I actually put it to the journalists and all of these, including the scientific uh, publications have got journalists who who are trying really hard to get to get information out there, um, yeah. and and that's why. So I, you yeah. trust those sources more than than think tanks and specialist uh, sources. Uh, if I'm looking for to just to generally follow trends, that's who I would and follow news and sort of hear like where things are. That's who I would trust. Um, on the other hand, but if what I, if you want to go deeper and and really trace and perhaps even have the ambition of contributing to innovation? Let's say that you're interested in starting a, a, a medical uh, or a digital healthcare startup. Yeah, then then I think you have to go do, you have to go deep, and I think you have to go through all those sources. I mean, you know, let me give one other reference uh, uh, to to um, uh, an organization that uh, I'm on the uh, advisory board for. It's the Digital Medicine Society. So it's a relatively new organization. It's uh, you know they they go under under the acronym DIME D I M E uh, for digital medicine. They actually have yep. built uh, a, a terrific online library. Um, they're trying to be as objective as possible. So it's a professional society that's aimed at professionals like you know f- physicians. Um, there are other trade organizations uh, like the digital Med- the Digital Healthcare Alliance. Uh, is is actually uh, um, aimed at companies working in this space. Um, also has a terrific library, and they, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's I misspoke. It's it's DTA Digital Therapeutic Alliance is a trade organization right. uh, that that's aimed in this area. They've got they provide a lot of information, and I think between the two of them, you kind of get you know two sides of the story. You get the the company side, and then you get the professional side. Uh, that I think and and are, are terrific resources. So DTA and Dom, I think, are good places. Got it. What about podcasts, Greg? Are you a big podcast listener, or or is uh, this one of your first forays into podcasting? As a both in terms of listening and uh, and in terms of appearing on one. What, what, what about podcasts? Podcasts. Have you seen any medical podcasts? Uh, I do. Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, there yep. there are there's some terrific podcasts that I've I've learned a lot from. You know, and I I right. do. You know, I do try. I do tend to kind of, uh, uh, you know, go either by topic or by by sort of, you know, by by um, uh, um, you know subjects that, that that I'm particularly interested in, in following, or or in some cases, you know, by brand of of you know uh, people I trust who, who I who do interesting. 
So. You know, I'm, I'm a late convert to podcasts, uh, but I have experienced that it's almost an unfair advantage uh, that podcasters have in the sense that, I mean, you just went on a run, I'm, I'm guessing. The thing is, you've got to decide who are you going to let into your ear because, you know, you are extremely influenceable when you're on your run. I mean, I, I don't know, on my run, historically, I kind of process my entire life. So if I'm going to let in a podcast on my run, I mean, there are podcast episodes, you know, of like 45 minutes, which is my run. I can't get it out of my head. I, I remember almost everything in, the, in that crazy podcast. Because because it has that direct connection to me when I am at my most vulnerable. I'm not thinking about anything else. That's right. That's right. I, I think yeah. it's fantastic. And, and actually, I think it's fantastic learning. And it's ways for us to keep up with the world. Um, you, I do exactly the same thing when you know when I'm exercising. You know when I'm when I'm uh, on a treadmill or or, or, or you know doing cardio or running or biking. Uh, I, I prefer to I either either listening to books on tape or, or podcasts. Got it. Look, Greg, this has been fantastic. I, I hope that uh, I can have you again, and I, I would love to call on you for m- many, many different things. You know, th- your experience is so rich that we were, I think, only scratching the, the surface of what we could have talked about. But thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your observations on digital healthcare with us. Uh, my, my pleasure. My pleasure. You know, your questions and, and, and comments were incredibly insightful. So, uh, you know, it, it, you, you, you'll probably get an MD after your name soon. <laughs> uh, that would have to be an honorary MD. No one should ever ask me to treat anyone. So that's a, that, that's a good one. You have just listened to episode 19 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was digital health in future pandemics. Our guest was Greg Nicolai, Chief Medical Officer at PRI Health Sciences, faculty at Yale School of Management, and healthcare innovation columnist for Forbes. We talked about where digital health as a field is right now and where it's moving promising startups, vaccine innovation, improving clinical trials, and staying ahead by tracking insight in the field. My takeaway is that digital health has come quite far, but that its breakaway promises have only just begun to manifest themselves. This year, investment in the field has spiked even before COVID-19, which indicates we will move at a rapid pace in the next few years. One exciting field is prescription digital therapeutics. However, big challenges remain. Progress in healthcare doesn't come easy, even with digital tools at our disposal. We are dealing with legacy infrastructures, mindsets, government regulation, and intractable problems coming from left field, such as pandemics and the complexities inherent in any public health intervention. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.